We're going to switch the presentations because uh, of traffic issues um, and start with what is a major issue, not just in hospitals, um, as I'm sure Tom Gottlieb will about to say. Uh, antibiotic resistance is one of the great and serious challenges um, that we confront as a community, as a nation. Um, and interesting research is showing that a lot of antibiotic resistance that emerges in hospitals has come from the community, not necessarily from hospitals themselves. So what is done out in the community, the sort of antibiotics people are exposed to, not just on scripts from their GPs, but in the food that they eat, is, is becoming a critical issue. So to deal with this very difficult and challenging issue is uh, Tom Gottlieb, Associate Professor Tom Gottlieb, University of Sydney, who works at Concord Hospital as an infectious disease physician, but sits on many committees at a national level dealing with uh, antibiotic resistance. Please welcome Tom Gottlieb. Well, thank you very much for the invitation to speak to you today. So I'll just uh, check whether my presentation is loaded. A slight hitch. Okay, so I'm going to talk to you about antimicrobial resistance. And uh, for those of you that remember Joni Mitchell well, she said it pretty well. She said, don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? And in some ways, that applies very well to the paradox of antibiotic use and antibiotic resistance. So this is a picture of Ronald Reagan in a time of great optimism in, in the 1950s. And at that time, Ronnie sent all his friends a box of Chesterfields for Christmas because they did no harm. And 1950s was a good time to be alive. And at that time, you can see advertising from some of the major pharmaceutical companies. And one of the advertisements is, thank heavens it's only pneumonia because we can treat pneumonia, we've got antibiotics. And the other one said, it's a, it's a virus world now because we've conquered all bacterial resistance. And as I said, it's a time of great optimism. And similarly, 1951, this may be difficult for those of you that, at the back to read, but this is a quote, an interview from the CEO of Pfizer. And Pfizer was enormously helpful in the war effort in trying to mobilize the production of penicillin and thereafter. And uh, he, he wrote at that time that Pfizer was one of the largest uh, antibiotic manufacturer, manufacturers and was well aware that it was a fast-moving, chance-taking business. But he said, like many other drug producers, Pfizer has been completely transformed by antibiotics. And he, the next quote was, he was sold on antibiotics from the start, and he remembered taking penicillin to patients in spoonfuls to Brooklyn hospitals and watching patients, dying patients, come to life. It was a great miracle, and these were the original miracle drugs. But it's, it's nice to see in the same paragraph, he also says, but for his fast-growing production, Pfizer has also found a market-selling antibiotic as a growth stimulant in animal feeds. And that's the hook, isn't it? Uh, we've used antibiotics uh, very well for patient care sometimes, but also very profligately, both in medicine and animal care. And I think we're paying for it, as you'll see. So this is a graph that was produced uh, in 2010, and it shows the introductions of sulfur, first of all, and penicillin, and what effect antibiotic 
use had on the decline of uh, uh, infection death rate in United States, and then looks at all the other medical, medical technologies that followed, and you can see the absolute impact of having antibiotics around to control patient care in terms of antibiotics and infection. Well, let's take you back very quickly. Let's move you forward to 2013, and here's just some clips from the newspapers. So one says, superbugs are overpowering antibiotics even faster than the Centers for Disease Control expected. Anyone, the other one says, antibiotic resistance, a final warning. We're rapidly approaching the point when antimicrobial resistance will be nothing short of a catastrophe. And for the many thousands in the US and elsewhere, the world's response is already too late. So the CDC, as one institution, has estimated that there are probably greater than two million resistant infections in the US per year. It's very difficult to define what resistant infections means. But they've also estimated that there'll be about 23,000 deaths in the US each year just due to resistance alone, on top of what would have happened anyway. So you have to think that aloud, and you think, well, think of a jumbo jet. That's a jumbo jet crashing per week of patients dying with antimicrobial resistance. Here's another graph looking, projecting to 2050, and it looks at the kind of um, death rates that one can project worldwide, and antimicrobial resistant infections will be the top of that queue. And I know my speaker that follows is talking about non-communicable diseases, but I'm glad I've got the precedence now and spoken first, because clearly antimicrobial resistance is there ahead of cancer and diabetes and all those other diseases. It's going to become a major problem, one which we can't anticipate on a daily basis because the way we currently work, we can still find something to treat most patients. So we're not seeing where it's at right now, but the projection is that we'll see a lot more problems. And the problem is also compounded by the fact that a lot of the pharmaceutical companies have gone out of antimicrobial production because really there, wasn't, there weren't great profits in it. If you can produce a good antihypertensive drug, or um, a drug that can be taken for many years by patients, there are profits. But antibiotics are taken for short periods, and often the experts will often say, don't use that new drug, it's, uh, it's too broad spectrum, we want to use the narrow all drugs. So often they don't have things to go with. So this is a difficult one for people at the back to follow, but you can see those little black smidges there. And that's the new classes of antibiotics starting in 1928 with sulfurs, in the 1940s with penicillin. But then when you get to about um, 1990, there's really no new classes of antibiotics that have been produced since that period of time. So we're in an antibiotic discovery void. And some of that hopefully will be reversed, but nonetheless, there'll be a period of time that there'll be a vacuum when we don't have new classes of products, be they antibiotics or other things that may help treat infections. So Margaret Chan, who's the current Director General of WHO, made a comment in 2012, and she said a post-antibiotic era means, in effect, an end to modern medicine as we know it, because antibiotics are used for many different purposes. Some interventions, be it hip, hip replacements, organ transplants, cancer, cancer chemotherapy, or even care of preterm infants would become far more difficult or even too dangerous to undertake in the first place. So, just bring it a little bit real to our day-to-day -day life. If you look at uh, any hospital in Australia, about 40% of all hospital inpatients receive an antibiotic at any one time. 
most studies will show that probably 50% of those uh, courses of antibiotics are inappropriate or inappropriately used. They're often in the wrong dose, which means that they're too little and the, antibiotic can be, the bug can become resistant, or too high. They're often treated for long, given for long durations when they're often not needed for that duration of time. And we're often using broad-spectrum agents which knock out other bacteria that you don't need to treat, and that drives antibiotic resistance. And one specific area that one can focus on, because a lot of patients get surgical prophylaxis, um, we know that about 30% of ordinary surgical prophylaxis for every operation that's happening every day in any of the hospitals in Australia are being given inappropriately. Often patients are given a, a dose of antibiotic at surgery and then given a packet of antibiotics for a week afterwards when all the evidence internationally has shown that a single dose of antibiotic is sufficient for the vast majority of operative interventions. So that is a great problem. And why do we do this? Well, I think we have developed an ingrained behavioural attitude to antibiotics. Um, and there's a number of issues, and one can go on. And I think antibiotic use is not a medical science, it's a behavioural science. So, as a rule, we all prefer to be in a comfort zone. We, we like to think we're doing good. Um, antibiotics are seen as a safe and easy commodity. It buys time, it allows you to see how the patient goes, and you think you're doing good in the meantime. We also have a problem that we are very hierarchical, and we often, uh, as professionals, the older we get, I guess, uh, see ourselves above guidelines. Guidelines are good for everyone else, but as individuals, we know better. And so to, also sometimes to avoid risk and to cover some of the knowledge gaps we have, we opt for very broad-spectrum agents, which we know will work for the individual patients. They're good for the individual, but societally, they, they can be a problem. There's also a lack of prescriber ownership, I would say. Um, we, none of us would ever think about giving an oncological drug without being a cancer specialist or having good knowledge about those drugs, but everyone feels they can prescribe an antibiotic, uh, whatever their level of experience is, because antibiotics are feel-good drugs, aren't they? And so they're often left to junior staff without the knowledge. And we also have a distorted reward system. You know, if you're woken up in the middle of the night, you're very happy that your junior doctor has started something broad spectrum which will probably cover everything rather than having to think very hard about what that choice has been. So we use broad spectrum antibiotics. And I think of this as an etiquette of antibiotic prescribing. There's two ways. It's a seesaw. Uh, a lot of times we have an individual patient care approach. And I think, uh, don't let me sound too critical, that's justified to a certain extent. We want everyone to get better. And so we use what we call just-in-case medicine. It's, it's defensive prescribing. It's just in case it's an infection. The patient may have heart failure, but just in case they have an infection, we'll give them keftriaxone. Or the patient's a bit confused, but they might have a urinary tract infection. Let's give them an antibiotic for urine infections, knowing that most of the time they don't. And so that risk of individual failure is much more powerful than what we project as a long-term loss of efficacy in the future for those antibiotics, because it's the immediate care that drives our use. And so that leads to more antibiotics, longer duration, and broader antibiotics. And the alternative is a societal approach where you try to conserve antibiotics. The current inward is antimicrobial stewardship, but it's much harder because you have to think through why you're giving an antibiotic. You actually have to hold off giving an antibiotic, and that makes us sometimes feel insecure. 
but also antibiotics have their side effects, and maybe by having a more societal approach, you avoid the collateral damage, be it antibiotic resistance or developing uh, supra uh, problems such as Clostridium difficile diarrhea. Sometimes it gets harder than that. I thought I'd just use an illustration. So which way do you go? So here's an example of someone with severe burns. We have a burns unit at our hospital, 36-year-old male, 60% burns, intubated and admitted to ICU. And here, over 130 days in hospital, 80 of them in ICU, this patient had 12 operations. You can see just the different germs, gram-negative and gram-positive, for those of you who remember that terminology. Um, these are just the bloodstream infections that patient had, about 12 different bloodstream infections, some of them with quite resistant organisms. And you can view this as two ways. If I was the ICU physician and this patient survived, Look, this is a very successful story and a very happy outcome because ultimately your patient gets better and you have done what you, what you set out to do. And never mind what antibiotics are needed because they truly are needed for this patient. On the other hand, the alternative outcome measure from sort of uh, doomsayers like me is if you're an ID physician, well, this patient's been 130 days in ICU in a burns unit. He's got all these resistant organisms and, and he's exposed to more antibiotics and other people around him are exposed to those germs and antibiotics use is, uh, you know, is substantial and this is an infection control disaster. But you can't uh, countermand the real fact that you're trying to get this patient better. So as we see more intensive medicine and intensive use, we are going to see a lot of antibiotics used uh, rightfully. What we have to control is that unnecessary use in hospitals and in the community. So I'm just going to give you one slide crash course on superbugs. Um, I hate the word superbugs, but anyway, I thought I'd just do it in one slide, and I hope this covers it reasonably. So many bacteria are antibiotic susceptible. They're not resistant, but they're still highly virulent and cause, can cause morbidity and death. Uh, pneumococcal infection, a flesh-eating streptococcus, they're not resistant, but they can cause bad outcomes. Some organisms are resistant, but cause infection only in a very, very small minority, and that's actually the majority. Most patients with resistant staph or these resistant E. coli, which I'll come back to, are carried on our skin or in our gut. We never get sick unless we're vulnerable in some ways, and therefore we can carry these organisms but not know that we've got them, and they will never make us ill. But unlike all other um, prescribing, antibiotics are different. If you take an antihypertensive, it's between you and the drug, and no one else needs to know. But when you take an antibiotic, it has an effect on you, your gut flora, but everyone else's around you gut flora as well, because eventually you shed those organisms, and these are often passed around to everyone around you. So these are much more societal-type drugs to use. Now, going back to this, many bacteria are set apart of our commensal flora. So we, don't, we try to get rid of bacteria, but we shouldn't because they're part of what we live with. Uh, staph on the skin, E. coli is part of our gut flora. That's, that's normal. And also, they're normal flora in lots of animals, and they get into our food, and they get into our environment, as E. coli may, but they may become problematic when they become resistant. Now, bacteria transfer genetic material both to daughter cells, to their daughter bacteria, but also they can transfer genetic material to any bacteria in proximity. 
So bacteria are talking to each other in the gut, and they transfer this genetic material between each other. So you can say this antimicrobial resistance is very promiscuous because resistance spreads around very, very easily. These resistant enzymes protect bacteria from antibiotics, so the more resistant the bacterium is, the more likely it will survive and continue to be spread. And the more antibiotics are inhibited, the more multi-resistant these bacteria become. And of course, we get to some bacteria eventually that have mutated to that extreme level at the right end of the curve, where they become extremely resistant and they become virtually untreatable. So here's two examples, and these are gut organisms. You often hear about E. coli or Klebsiella. They're part of our normal gut flora. But here's on, on the left, I think, uh, what we call an ESBL, and I apologize for the acronyms. And ESBLs are just mutated E. coli that we normally have, but this time they're highly resistant. And, on, and you can see in the red all the antibiotics that they're resistant to, but we still have some antibiotics, but they're all intravenous that it's sensitive to. And on the right, there's a new breed of resistance called CREs, carbapenem resistance, and they have different terms. There's one called NDM and one called KPC. And as I've tried to illustrate, they're resistant to all antibiotics that we would normally use in our day-to-day -day life, except in this case something called colistin, which is an antibiotic we abandoned in the 1950s because it was too uh, toxic. So those sort of organisms, if they cause an infection, and as I said, mostly patients are colonized, but if they do happen to cause an infection in a vulnerable patient, they're virtually untreatable. So what's happening around the world? This is ESBLs, which are the less resistant, around parts of Southeast Asia. Australian rates, about 5 to 10% of people will carry an ESBL now, more in nursing homes, less in the community. But nonetheless, it's growing. 10, 15 years ago, it was 0%. If you go to India or Indonesia, in an average person in the community, you will have about 80% of their E. coli now having an ESBL, which is resistant to virtually all oral agents. So if a patient has an infection with one of these organisms, they need to be hospitalized, they need to be given intravenous antibiotics. The game has changed. So that's a real problem. If you've got an ESBL infection, and ESBLs are going up, while MRSA is going down, then your hospital stay is probably increased by 2.5, that's in one study, and your hospital mortality is increased threefold. So just the fact that you've got an ESBL infection in your bloodstream increases your outcome. I just thought I'd digress, however, because it's an important point. Our MRSA rates are going down. Our bloodstream MRSA rates are going down. And for a very simple reason, and sometimes the simplest solutions are the ones that work. And the simplest solution here is alcoholic hand rub. So here's your typical hospital. We're all crowding around the bed, touching all the things that the patient's surrounded with, examining the chest, as you can see. But additional hand rubs and using hand rubs to their best capacity has, is probably the major reason that MRSA has been reduced. But it won't work for gram-negatives like E. coli. We need other measures. We need to reduce antibiotic use. We need to improve hospital cleaning. There's all lots of different measures. Now, just to move on, and just to give you a bit more of perspective what's happening in Australia and worldwide, here are these CREs. These are the very, very multi-resistant organisms. And here, you can see they this particular one called NDM1, which has got the unfortunate name of New Delhi metallobetalactamase. 
started in India and Pakistan. As we travel around the world, it moved to the UK, to, to parts of Europe, U USA, and we see occasional strains in Australia. So far, not many, but we've just had one just the other day um, in one of our hospitals. So they, they crop up, and those patients, if they have infection, are virtually untreatable. Why has this happened? Well, in India, and I'm not trying to pick on individual countries, there are probably about 100 to 200 million people now who are colonised with one of these organisms just in their gut. Pakistan hospitals, there was a measurement of about 37% people carrying this organism. One of the problems is that India makes about a third of the world's antibiotics. They're available over the counter. There are many manufacturers. But also it's hygiene. There's lack of toilets. These antibiotics are often released into the environment through poor storage and poor, uh, poor uh, sanitation. And that's just a reflection of first world versus third world issues. What about, and there was a comment put by an Indian um, uh, newspaper saying, India has lost the war against the toughest forms of antibiotic resistance, largely because of poor sanitation, unregulated use of antibiotics, and an absence of drug resistance monitoring. But that's not just India. In China, you can measure how much it's been used. Uh, China probably consumed uh, about half of the global total of antibiotics uh, in, in the last year. And a lot of those antibiotics end up in the waterways, end up in food supplies. But Australia is no, we shouldn't say, look, the problem is elsewhere. This is just measure of antibiotics in European countries. And guess where Australia sits at this level here? It's one of the highest consumers of antibiotics when we measure ourselves against Western countries, such as Europe. And this is a study that was done recently in The Lancet. And the red countries are the ones that have gone up uh, on, a, on a yearly basis in antibiotic use. The bluer countries have gone down. And you can see, at least in this measurement uh, by the group that performed this, Australia was one of the highest countries incrementally in terms of antibiotic use. So we've got a problem. A couple of other th just basic quick facts. This is just a data from the United States looking at the antibiotic use. And the bottom line, which is steady, is antibiotic use for medical use. The top line, which you see going up, is antibiotics sold for meat and poultry production. And in the US, 80% of um, antibiotic use is in food production given to animals for growth promotion, where often there is absolutely zero need for antibiotic use in the first place. So if you go back to that comment in the 1950s by Pfizer, you can see that the seeds of our discontent were sown then. Just a, a couple of comments about, um, uh, if you look at chicken meat, this was done in Holland, one of the best countries for antibiotic use, they found that 80% of their poultry, which is a column on the left, uh, had ESBLs, these highly resistant E. coli's, in the poultry alone. So these chickens get contaminated, partly because there's so much antibiotic use going into animals. And I love this little thing as a side issue. Here's a study that looked at air and surface samples from cars driving behind poultry trucks, and they showed that bacterial concentration could be inhaled by two to three times higher. So any of you have a convertible? It's, uh, it's a tough game out there. Okay, so just let me try to finish with a couple of slides, because one shouldn't just talk about the problem, we should talk about the solutions, because that's what really matters. We need a lot of solutions, and the problem, it's a mosaic or it's a fragmented tapestry. We need lots of people contributing. You need smart companies and smart governments. We need leadership and governance. We need political will. We need incentives to pharma to come back into antibiotic production. We need good diagnostics so we know when we've got a viral infection 
and we don't need antibiotics, and we need to reward innovation. It's a behavioral problem, and we need to somehow promote this is a fragile nature, so, and antibiotics have a fragile nature. We have to protect them. We have to identify those behavioral triggers. We're all different, and what works for some you know, surgeon may be different to work, what works uh, for a GP in the community, etc. We need to look at our infection control. Sanitation is important worldwide. We need some organisational issues. And here we need all our specialty groups to, not just infectious diseases, whether they're cardiology or whether they're nurses, and also at university level, we need to have antibiotic resistance in all our curricula. And I think it is very important that associations like this take this into account and drive um, better antibiotic use. International, unlike other use of drugs, uh, antibiotic resistance doesn't respect uh, borders, and we need some legislative measures. We, at the end of the day, we need a worldwide ban on antibiotic uh, use and, uh, of antibiotics. It's a given. Uh, just a couple of comments. On the left, you can see all the different uh, things that end up in the Sydney Morning Herald, be it diabetes, mental health, obesity. Everyone's competing for the same health dollar, and it's much harder to fight for antibiotic resistance because it's much more of an intangible problem. We can capture the people in Australia that need interventions for mental health. Much harder to f do for antibiotic resistance, particularly when we say, look, at the end of the day, it's an international problem. But if we don't do something, no one else will either. So we have to have some efforts. Well, look, there has been some improvement and there's some good news. For the first time, we've had a antimicrobial resistance draft and a, um, a program for Australia released this year in June 2015, and it was released both simultaneously by the Minister for Health and Minister for Agriculture. And so that's a one health approach, and in fact that's what we need, because antibiotics are used throughout the community in agriculture and health, and we need to drive this agenda simultaneously. And there's a vision statement there, which is a bit too hard to read, but it really does say that as a society, we need to reimagine how we use antibiotics. This um, document has been released. It's got seven different prongs, and just to summarise, we need better awareness and education. We do need antibiotic stewardship. We need One Health surveillance. Without surveillance, we don't know what we're using and how much resistance is out there. So we need to have those at the baseline. We need good infection control, no longer just hand hygiene, but good hospital cleaning. For example, if you're focusing on hospitals, research innovation. We need a global approach, and Australia as a uh, country with reasonable amounts of money should be spending some time to try to make those efforts for other parts of the world as well. And we need governments and leadership. But if I was going to say it, you just don't need governments and leadership alone because as much as regulation is very powerful and as much as we could do better with how we use antibiotics and how available antibiotics are, that's a top-down solution. But the bottom-up solution is that all of us need to focus on how we use antibiotics and think every time we're about to use them, say, do we really need them? What's the gain? And is there a loss? So it really behoves on all of us. So look, a, friend, a colleague has sent this to me this weekend. She was um, at a urological conference and she saw this advertising for Keflex. I assume the biggest organ is the skin. But nonetheless, it worried me about the promotion of kephalexin. What we want to do is de-promote these antibiotics. So what's the challenge of antimicrobial resistance? I, I like this little um, um, thing you can buy somewhere, I'm sure, on the internet. And it says, anybody can be cool, but awesome takes practice. So I think we all need to be awesome. Thank you.
Thank you, Beth Hartley.